So, Luke chapter 13, let's pray, and then we'll read, and we'll jump into it. So, Father, we thank you for this morning. I pray as, as we kind of gather our thoughts in our hearts, Lord, that you would help us to focus, help us to hear and understand your word this morning, Lord, that you would speak to us as we know that it's living, it's active, that it's not some dead text that was written 2,000 years ago, but it's still pertinent to us today, or that it can change us, it can mold us, and it can transform us, it can make a dead man alive. And so I pray it does that this morning that we would adhere to it, that we would not just be listeners of the word, but that we would also be listeners and doers of the word. And so as we go forth out of this place today, and that we have our own individual weeks ahead, that we would be obedient to the things that we've learned, to the things that we know. And so we just praise you, we honor you. In Jesus' name, amen. So Luke chapter 13, we, ha- we were not in it last week, so I kind of want to give just a, a little bit of an update Um, to where we're leading into in verse 18. As you guys remember, if you were here with us, uh, Jesus performed this miracle for a woman who had this infirmity that, that displayed itself physically. Remember for 18 years, I believe it was 18 years, I can't remember, yeah, 18 years, she was bent over and she could not raise herself up, right? So she had this, let's call it a disability. Uh, Jesus goes to her, right? He's the one that initiates. He's the one that comes to her. Although she's the one who is in his presence, which is a good thing. Like she, it's, it's like, it's almost twofold. Like she made her way to the temple, to the synagogue, but at the same time when she was there, that's when Jesus met her. Now that's not to say that to find Jesus, we have to be at church. Okay. That would be really uh, ignorant of us to say. Um, I think it's important that we go to church but we can find Jesus outside of the four walls of the church, whether that be this church or the 15 other thousand that are here on this main street, right? So it doesn't matter about the geographical location. The point is that, that she came into the presence of Christ, okay? And he happened to be there. So for us, we know that we don't have to find Christ at a specific location, but we can bring our own hearts into the presence of God, that we can boldly approach the throne of grace, Right? And at the same time, he's also approaching us because he's the one that also takes that initiative. So he comes to her, and he says to her in verse 12, woman, you are loosed from your infirmity. And so I think it's, it's a twofold thing that spirit, he's meeting her spiritually, but he's also meeting her physically. And we know that Jesus does that for us too, right? Like the most important thing about us is our spirit, Right? And that's what Christ came to do, to to free us from that spiritual death, right? But it's not that he neglects or doesn't care about what's happening here on earth. That wouldn't be really a good father. He does care. And so we know through scripture that he reveals himself as a good father and says, you know, I know the things that you need and I, I provide them, right? More so than I provide for the birds of the air and the lilies of the field. And you can see just by looking at them that they have their provision even without doing anything. How much more so, you who I created in, in my image, will I care for you? And he, he gives us that. He tells us that. And then we experience that. But again, the most important thing is that he frees us and he makes us alive in the spiritual sense. Right? And so he lays his hands on her and says in verse 13 that she was made straight and she glorified God. Now there was people who saw this and they didn't like it. Who were those people? The Pharisees. Why did they not like this? Jealous, Sabbath, I think you just said that, that, that they came up with their own 
set of rules, right, that were uh, greater than God's set of rules, that they were outside of God's rules, um, that maybe they, they utilized God's rules, but they made them more strict, right? And what ends up happening is when the religious do that, it causes people to not want to or be able or capable of coming into the presence of God. And that's not what Christ wants, right? Christ's heart is that all to be saved, that he loves every single one of us. And so he doesn't want to at any point be a hindering block or a stumbling block to, to those. That's not his, his heart, right? He will eventually become a stumbling block and a hindering to people because he is light and the darkness doesn't like light, but that doesn't mean that they don't have the opportunity to come to the light or to come to Christ, okay? So the, the Pharisee here doesn't like this, and Jesus calls him, or as Luke says in verse 15, that not only is he Jesus, but he refers to him as Lord, as God. He says, the Lord answered him and said, hypocrite, does not each one of you of the Sabbath loose his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it away to water it? So Jesus was like, okay, so you're mad that I helped this person, because it's what's more important in this world other than the people, right? People are more important than things. People are more important than animals. People are more important, is what Jesus is getting at. And here, you're okay with taking your donkey, loosening the chain of the donkey from the post and leading him to water, which is work on the Sabbath, but you're not okay with the Son of God healing and making this woman alive. Right? You're not okay with that? I mean, I think all of us could sit here and, and say, after Jesus explains it in this way, that, yeah, that's hypocritical. And, yeah, you're, you're putting too much upon the animal compared to the person. Again, the person is more important. So he says, So ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound, think of it, for 18 years he loosed from this bond on the Sabbath. And so after he says this, after he does this, there's a group of people who rejoice in this, and then there's a group of people who are put to shame. And so we get into verse 18 here. As we continue on with this thought, what's happening here, there's, very, there's, there's no like transition to another day or another hour. This is just straight into uh, that same moment. So it says in verse 18, I'm going to read the entirety of the rest of the chapter, and we'll come back. Then he said, speaking of Jesus, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a mustard seed which a man took and put in his garden and grew and became a large tree, and the birds of the air nested in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I liken the kingdom of God? It is like leaven which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. And Jesus went through the cities and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Then one said to him, Lord, are there, a f there, are there few who are saved? And Jesus said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow gate, for many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen, and risen up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open for us, and he will answer and say to you, I do not know you. Where are you from? Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know you where you are from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves thrust out. They will come from the east and from the west and from the north and the south and sit down in the kingdom of God. And indeed, there are last who will be first 
and there are first who will be last. On that very day, some Pharisees came, saying to him, Get out and depart from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And Jesus said to them, Go tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons to perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must journey today, tomorrow, and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the stone who kills the prophets and stones, those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you are not willing. See, your house is left to you, desolate, and assuredly I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So there's a lot to cover, but it all flows together. And it all flows together with what we were just talking about. To better understand these two parables that, that come here in verses 18, 19, and 20, and 21. Because we, there's two ways to, to look at these two parables. But I think to get to the right understanding, we have to see the context. And so the context here is the kingdom of God, right? The context is there's bad people. There's hypocrisy, right? We just got done learning about that and talking about that with the Pharisee who is hypocritical, who puts too much burden upon people to come to Christ. And then after that, we get the narrow way where people start to question, well, how many people are going to be saved? Is it, a very, is it very little? And then Jesus, who <laughs> never gives a yes or no answer, right? He tells a story, which then really does give our answer, right? Which is, again, he goes to the root of the issue, Rather than saying yes or no, this is how many people will be saved or not, he says, why don't you worry and focus on your own self? That's, that's what we need to do. And he says, right, for those of you that come to me and who are not a part of the house, who are not in the house, you will knock on the door, and I'll answer, and I'll say, I don't know you. Where are you from? And so he gives this picture of people who are outside of the kingdom of God, who are outside of the church, who are outside of the body of Christ, and eventually what happens to them. But Jesus is also going to explain, this is why you are outside and you are knocking on the door that has already been shut. This is why you cannot make it inside, okay? Because he's going to say, I don't know you, and depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Two things that he's going to point out. So as we understand the context of what's happening before and after, we really get to the real vision or the real understanding of these two parables. we got the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven. And Jesus starts off by saying, what is the kingdom of God like? Now, this isn't an exhaustive thing. This isn't a full thing of this is exactly what the kingdom of God is like. This is just a picture of a portion of what it's like. Because Jesus explains even more in depth of what the kingdom of God looks like, the kingdom of heaven looks like in other verses. But Jesus is getting at, at something, okay? And, and what he's getting at is that there is going to be corruption and that there is going to be, um, what's the word, wickedness and evil that can even seep itself with inside of the church, okay? So let's look at this. Verse 18, so Jesus says, what is the kingdom of God like and to what shall I compare it? He says it's like a mustard seed. Anybody know what a mustard seed looked like? Really, really tiny, right? Now, it's not the smallest seed in the world, but it's stinking tiny. And it, and it, and it typically blossoms and grows into a, like a bush. 
He says, it's like a mustard seed, which a man took, he put it in his garden, it grew, and it became a large tree, and the birds there nested in its branches. So, like I said, there's two ways to view this, these two parables. Both of them you can view in the context of like a positive way, and both of them you can view in a negative way, okay? So the positive way that we could view it is that the kingdom of God is like this little seed, right? It takes root, and it grows, and it becomes huge, it becomes large, right? It's the idea of a person opening up their hearts to the word of God, and before you know it, there's hundreds, there's thousands, there's, you know, evangelism going on, there's discipleship going on, and, and there's this growth that is exponentially happening, right? Now, that's, that's a true thing. That can happen, right? Now, I'm not sure if, I'm not fully convinced that's what the parable truly means. Again, it's a true statement, but I'm not sure if that's what Jesus is intending. I think it's more in the negative sense, because if you look at what he's talking about contextually, if you look at the symbols that he's using in the sense of leaven and bird, those things all throughout the Bible are never typically something that's used in a positive light. It's usually in a negative light. Now, 100% of the time when the word leaven is used, it's always in reference to what? Sin, right? It's always in reference to sin. Is sin good or bad? Bad. Okay, good. I don't have to convince you of that, right? Now, even with the, with the symbol of a bird, that is typically used in a negative demonic light as well. If you look at Matthew 13, when it talks about the parable of the sower, when he throws the seed on the ground, right? In one of those pictures, in one of those illustrations, birds are in it, and what do they do with that seed? They eat it up. Yeah, they eat up the seed. Now, if a bird were to eat the seed, is the seed able to root itself in the ground and plant and, and blossom? No, obviously not, right? That makes sense. So, so the bird is something bad. The bird was, was a picture of Satan destroying the work of God in people's lives, and usually by the word, right? And so here we have this mustard seed. And again, a mustard seed is typically grown into a bush. So for it to grow into this great and large tree is something that's kind of abnormal. It's this, this abnormal growth that is happening. It's an unnaturally large and it harbors these tree, these birds, right? And again, birds are typically in the light of something that is negative. So what we can see here and what we can kind of understand with what Jesus is saying and implying, especially with this Pharisee who is a part of the church, right? He's the one that's at the synagogue. He's the one who's basically running it all and making sure that it, it goes the way that he wants it to go. But what he's doing is he's hypocritical, right? He's impure. He's blocking people from coming to know the true Christ. And so what Jesus is warning us of, I believe, is that within the kingdom of God, in the sense of with here on earth, with the church, that yes, we can grow, but to be aware that sometimes there's wolves in sheep's clothing, that sometimes there is hypocrisy, sometimes there is corruption that is hidden within. And that's unfortunate, right? That's not the intention of the kingdom of God that we're going to see in heaven. But here on earth, we can see that happening, right? We can see that happening. And so these birds are that, that example of this corruption that can be hidden within. And so Jesus gets to the second parable, and he says, to what shall I liken the kingdom of God? It's like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal until it was all leaven. Again, we can also look at this in a positive way, right? Maybe Jesus is saying that 
you know, the gospel is, is able to permeate and to go within the community, within the, the town, the cities, you know, from one person to another, and it exponentially grows and people get saved, right? Kind of how, how leaven does. Like if a little leaven leavens the whole lump. We can look at it in that positive light, but again, leaven is always the picture of, of sin and something not good. So if we look at this from a negative viewpoint, right, a negative in interpretation of this parable, we can see, too, that Jesus' warning of the sin, of the impurity, of the corruption that can come within, and it can grow and it can fester, right? Paul even warns the Christian or the, the, the Corinthian church of this as well. Anytime that there was sin within the church, don't accept it, but rather deal with it, right? Because if you accept it, we know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And this is what he says to the Corinthian church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6, he says, Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Right? It's not that we, are, uh, we can perfectly abstain from sin the rest of our life, but what I do know is that if there is not a conscience, if there is not guilt, if there is not confession and repentance from sin that we commit, then what can happen is that little bit of sin that we justify or that we allow, we know that it can, it can do the snowball effect and it can grow and grow and grow. So the little leavening can happen within our own individual selves, but it can also happen within a, a collective group of people. The more that we justify and allow sin, the greater the ability that it can snowball and that it can get worse until it gets completely out of hand. And so Paul warns us, Paul warns the Corinthian church, don't, don't do that. Don't glorify in that. And I don't know if you guys remember what was happening. If you guys have your AirPods or cell phones, put them away, please. If you don't remember, like what was happening was there was this man who was sleeping with his father's wife, so his, his stepmom. And, and the church was, was welcoming him and loving him, and everyone knew it. Now, all of us could probably sit here, and I would say 100% of us, 99% of us would agree that that's probably not right. But he was so welcomed and so received and so loved within the community with, of the church that nobody ever called him out on his sin. And so when that happens, when there's love only and there's no truth attached to it, well, then you're just going to continue on the sin because you, you feel the, you're, you're comfortable, right? But love is not just being 100% accepting of your sin. It's being accepting of who you are and loving you and welcoming you, but at the same time telling you the truth so that what you are doing, the sin that's in your life, doesn't lead to your own destruction, right? I, I care about you eternally, not just your comfort here for the next two years, right? I care about you eternally. And so this leaven that we see in this parable, again, it's a picture of this wickedness of sin that can, can creep into the church, right? And if we aren't careful, it can eventually affect everyone. And so, verse 22, Jesus continues making his way where? Because he's got a goal in mind. He's got a city in mind. He's got a place in mind. Where does he want to go? Jerusalem. Thank you. Why? That's where he needs to go. That's where he's prophesied to go. That's, that's where he's going to lay down his life, right? And so it says he went through the cities and villages and teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. 
So he's getting closer and closer to his appointed work there in Jerusalem. He's not going to arrive there until we get into chapter 19, but he's not far away. And we know that this was, this was his purpose. This was his goal, right? Because we saw this all the way back in chapter 9 of Luke, if you guys remember. In verse 51, it says, Now it came to pass, when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem, right? Like, I remember we, we talking about this where, like, you know, he, he had his game face on. Like, like it, it switched. He knew at that very moment that it was time to go do what he was called to do, what he was asked to do of the Father. And willingly, he went forward with it, right? Like, he was on a mission, and nothing was going to stop him. And nothing could stop him. And we'll see that as we end this section today, where the Pharisee warns Jesus, well, Herod wants to kill you. Well, Jesus' response is basically, I mean, he doesn't really say it like this, but let him try. He can't. You can't change the course of, of, of God, right? Like, you do not have that ability. If Jesus is to die on the cross, well, that's how he's going to die. There is no other way you can kill him, right? And we see that with the way that Jesus handles himself with the, with the mobs and the crowds and people trying to kill him. Anytime they tried to do it, they couldn't get to him. They couldn't find him, right? And, and they would rise up and they would try to find him and catch him. And it's not that Jesus was, like, sneaky and quick, I mean, maybe he was, I don't know. But he was also God, so I think he just could hide himself or get out of a place really quick or, you know, teleport or I don't know. Maybe not, I don't know. But we do see in his new body that he kind of does that, right? He can walk through walls and he can appear here and there. Um, anyways, I think using the word teleport kind of messes us up, but I think he has the ability to do anything. Psalm tw- or, uh, verse 23, he's journeying to Jerusalem, okay? And as he's on his way, going from city to city, teaching and journeying, it says, one comes to him, one said to him, Lord, are there few who are saved? Are there few who are saved? And he says to him, and he gives him a story. And the word saved is important. What do we as people need to be saved from? From sin, right? Now, for some of us, we might think, you know, I want to be saved from this person or this situation. And even for the majority of the Jews, their salvation was an understanding or a belief that, that the Messiah would come and save them from their oppression of the Romans, right? Because the Romans are what, who ruled over them. And so they didn't want to be under, under the Roman rule anymore. They wanted to be freed from that. But Jesus is like, no, no, no. Again, I, I came to save those who are lost, right, to seek and save those who are lost, those who are dead, okay, again, meaning spiritually. And so when we sin, and we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, we need a rescue, we need a savior, and we cannot save ourselves. Unfortunately, we can't do that. We can get into a whole conversation about that, and I can teach you doctrinally what that means, but just at its simplest, you cannot save yourself. No human can save themselves, but we have a God who can save us and wants to save us. And I think that's what's awesome, is that not only does he save us, but he wanted to save us. And so again, why Jesus here on the scene, why he's even on earth, is part of that plan for God to save us. And so this man has this question, is that, well, who's going to be saved? Is it, is it few? Is it a lot? Is it a little? 
Well, Jesus' response is basically don't worry so much about the salvation of others if, who, if this person's going to be saved, if that person's going to be saved. And I don't think this means that we become so selfish that we never share the gospel, we never evangelize. But I think contextually the point is first focus on yourself. Always make sure that you know that you are saved, that you know that you have faith in Jesus Christ, which saves us because then we receive the grace of God, right? Again, it's not about how many or how few, because I don't think that that's just a, a theological speculation that nobody really can answer, you know, the number, right? I think we have a best guess that it's probably going to be less than we think it is, right? But even then, I think when we get to heaven, we're going to be surprised of who is there and who isn't there, right? We're going to be surprised by that. So instead of answering this question with a yes or no, he tells a story. This is what he says in verse 24. He says to that man, strive to enter through the narrow gate. Again, here he is, focus on yourself. You worry about the journey that you're on. You make sure, you do everything in your ability to, stri- to, to enter through the narrow gate. He says, for many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able Not everyone's going to go to heaven. Not everyone is going to heaven. And I wish I could have a a longer discussion, a longer time to teach the concept of this and, and why, and logically why that's the case. But you need to understand not everyone is going to be able to go to heaven. Scripture is very clear that there is no universalist belief that just because, just because God loves everyone, that everyone will be saved and go to heaven, Right? That, that's not what the scripture teaches. That's not even what Jesus himself teaches. Jesus, even here in this very moment, is going to teach about hell and that people will be going to hell. Did you know that Jesus, more than anyone else in the New Testament, teaches about hell? Like, talks about hell? You know, and, it, and it's not, I don't think Jesus does it in a way to scare people because the fear of hell is not what drives us to Christ, right? It's rather his love but we also need to be aware that there is an alternative, that there is a hell, right? That if we do reject Christ, that that is where we are going because that is what we deserve to have and and to go to, right? So I think, in a sense, there could be fewer people in heaven than we think because we we assume that, you know, this, this, him, her, she, my dog, my cat, my horse, we're all going to heaven, well, no, that's, that's not the idea. Again, Jesus doesn't say all roads lead to heaven or all dogs go to heaven, right? That is, that is a concept that we as people try to reconcile because we don't like the idea of this person not going to heaven, right? But just because I can't reconcile it in my own mind, in my own heart, doesn't mean that it's not a biblical truth. It is a biblical truth, and I have to submit my own feelings, my own heart, my own experiences to that biblical truth. I can't change it. I'm not God, right? So there is no all roads lead to heaven. Matthew chapter 7, this is key. He says in verse 13 and 14, he says, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. There are many who go in it, in by it, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are a few who find it. Jesus tells us that there is a narrow gate, there is a narrow road, few go by it. 
But there is a broad road and a broad gate, and many go by it. And that's the one that leads to destruction. That's the one that leads to separation from, from God. That's the one where you can make your way to hell, right? Because he says there is only one way, and that way is small. And here's the thing. It's, it's not inclusive in the sense that only a few can, can, can get to that path. It's, it's, or exclusive, I mean. It's inclusive in the sense that it's open for everyone. It's just not everyone decides to take that path, right? So it's not that Jesus is like, yeah, well, Jeffrey, I'll let you go into heaven, and Whitney, I don't want you coming to heaven. You're going to hell, right? No, it's, we understand that Christ died for all, and then he doesn't want anyone to perish, but Christ also knows that there's many who are going to reject him and not follow him, which means that they've decided to take the path that is broader, the path that a majority of people will take, Right? And we've had this discussion before. I even taught it with, with main service one time that we have to reconcile and understand that there is only one way to heaven. There's only one way to God, and that way is through who? Jesus, right? There is no other way. There is no other way. Now, you and I, we can argue about that. We can not reconcile that. We can not believe that. We can say, no, I think there's different ways and there's more ways, or... Or we can say, I don't like that there's only one way. But here's the thing. This is what we need to understand. When we receive grace, when we receive something good because like, we didn't deserve it, and we've all understood this, right? You've done something bad in your life, right? You know that you deserve some type of punishment. But let's say somebody then was, was nice towards you and gracious and loving, and you're like, well, that, that doesn't, seem, doesn't seem right because what I do deserve is, is this. Well, when it comes to only having one way to God the Father into eternity and heaven with him, I think if we were to understand from the perspective of, I am a sinner, I am wretched, I am wicked, I am gross, I am defiled, that why would a God even love me, yet even give me the ability to be free and saved? That's amazing, right? Like, that's amazing that he even gives me an option, that he even gives me one way because I'm not deserving of even having a way, right? Because what I am deserving of is hell, is that punishment, is that consequence for my wickedness, right? So I, I think it's about perspective. I think it's about how do we view ourselves? How do we view God? And if we buck up and become prideful, we think, no, I don't, I don't agree with that. I don't like that. There should be more, more ways than one. Well, let me tell you, the fact that there's one way is astonishing, you know, and so we have that ability to come to God through, the, through Jesus. Jesus says in John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me, right? Except through me. And so Jesus, you know, as he says, strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able you know, it's, it's a, it's a wake-up call. It's a warning. You know, make sure that you yourself, focus on you yourself, that you are striving to enter through that narrow gate. And it's not a works-based thing. It's not that I try to make my way to heaven by being a good person. But no, remember, what is the narrow gate? Well, it's Jesus, right? He's the way. He is the truth, and he is life. No one gets to the Father except through him. So strive that we know Jesus more, right? Strive that we can know him and be known by him. And we'll see this later on in the chapter. Verse 25, 
It said, when once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open for us, and he will answer and say to you, I do not know you where you are from. Then you'll begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he's going to respond and say, I tell you, I don't know you and where you are from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. The point here that Jesus is making is focus that you strive for the narrow gate. Focus on yourself at this point and your own salvation and do it before it's too late. And this is always an interesting topic to teach to young people because you feel invincible. You feel like you have the rest of your life ahead of you. You are so moved and influenced by culture and the kids and the, and the peers around you that sometimes you think that this is not important or I can figure this out later in life. But Jesus is very, very transparent. And he's, he's giving us an urgency here. Whether you're 12 or you're 72, the time is now. Because there will come a time, and we don't know what the time is, that that door of grace, of long-suffering, of being able to come through the door, it will shut. God will shut that door. Right now, it's open. It's open for any of us to go and be a part of the kingdom of God. But there's a time, again, when it will be too late. Jesus told a parable of this with the, um, the ten virgins with their lamps. Five had their lamps ready, five didn't. We see this in Matthew 25. You guys can read this in your own time because I'm running out of time. But there were some who were ready and there's some who weren't. And the ones who weren't ready, they begged and they tried to, be, to get ready when it was too late, when they finally realized that, oh, now's the time to be ready. Well, no, no, it was too late at that point. And so Jesus, as he shares this the story here as well, not only saying that there's an urgency to this, but there's an importance of what you should be doing. And so they come to the door, they knock at the door that's already been shut. It's too late. He said, they say, Lord, Lord, open to us. And he'll answer and he say to them, I don't know you or where you're from. And their response is, what are you talking about? I, you know me. I know you. And, and what do they do? What do they say? How do they say they know him? They say they know him by this. We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. <laughs> you ever heard the saying that going to McDonald's doesn't make you a hamburger? Or going to Krispy Kreme doesn't make you a donut? Or going to a sporting event doesn't make you that professional athlete? Right? Just in the same sense that, that coming to church or being around other Christians doesn't make us Christians. Just because our parents might be saved doesn't mean that we're saved. Right? And I think sometimes illogically we as parents or your parents, because they, they desperately want you to be saved, sometimes they'll believe, they, they'll believe the lie that you're saved because they want you to be saved rather than actually looking at the fruit and the evidence of being saved. Does this make sense? And I'm not saying you're not saved. That's not what I'm saying. But I want to make sure, just as Jesus wants us to make sure, that we truly are saved, that we truly are on the right path, and we're not just either being hypocrites or that we even have deceived ourselves. He says, strive to enter through the narrow gate. Check yourself. Because 
There are people, as Jesus says in this story, there are people who will knock at the door. It's too late. And Jesus will say to them, I never knew you. And, and then their response will be, what are you talking about? I went to church. What are you talking about? I was, I was in your presence. I was in the presence of others. Right? I went to church. I, I had communion. I, I, I even read the word of God. I read the Bible. And Jesus is going to say, well, depart from me. I, I, never, I never knew you. And so we can't just, you know, I want to I read it like this. Because um, it, it seems harsh, but we can't be like name droppers, you know? Like um, if you ever try to, I don't know, I don't know how to explain this. Maybe I shouldn't explain it like this. But we try to get into some place or go somewhere and we name drop somebody, but we really don't know them well and they don't know us well. And it, we would look foolish if that person were there and we used their name. And they're like, why are you using my name? I, like, we met once. We're not that close, homie. Right? Like, you, you can't use my name in that way to get into this place. That's not how that works. Right? And I think we've tried that in, in life. But that's the idea here is that, like, what are you talking about, Jesus? They try to, they try to create a bogus relationship. We ate and drank in your presence and you taught on our streets. And Jesus is thinking, you say you know me, but I have no idea who you are, right? <laughs> That's happened to me sometimes with people in this life. They know who I am, but I'm like, I don't know who you are, right? Well, I've seen you from afar off. Well, that's not a relationship, right? And this is what Jesus is getting at here, is that when it comes to, to knowing him, there is a bond and a relationship where not only do we know him, but he knows us, that we know him and we are known by him. In, in a real sense, Jesus does know everyone, right? Like, obviously. He knows of our life and this and that. Yet, but in, a, in another real sense, he doesn't know them in the sense of a relationship, right? Of this vital connection through faith. And so Jesus' importance, and he stresses the, the importance of relationship, right? I do not know you. But also the effects of the manner of our living. Because he calls them, you, get, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. And I think by us knowing Jesus, it affects the way that we do life. Where no longer are we workers of iniquity, but we're workers of, of the truth and the things that represent Christ. The love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Those things will come naturally through the relationship that we have with Christ. And Jesus warns of this over and over again all throughout the scriptures and, and the gospels. You know, he, he talks about those who uh, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, right? He says, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. And many will say to me, Lord, I, I prophesied in your name. I cast out demons in your name. I've done many wonders in your name. I served at church in your name. I went to church in your name. I read the Bible in your name, right? I'm trying, I went on missions trips. I sacrificed time and this and that. And yet at the end of the day, do we, do we know Jesus in a personal, intimate way that is obtained through faith, right? Or are we just doing all these works and tricking ourselves and deceiving ourselves that we have some, some relationship with him, but it's truly bogus? And that's a warning for all of us. This isn't just a warning for teenagers. This is a warning for adults as well. 
This is a warning for everyone. And that's why Jesus is like, don't worry about others. He says, strive that you yourself enter through the narrow gate. Because some will be deceived in their relationship with me and say, well, man, we ate and drank with you in the streets and, and we heard you speak. And Jesus is like, depart from me. One, because I never knew you. And two, because you're a worker of iniquity. And the reason you're a worker of iniquity is because you never knew me. And Jesus goes on in verse 28, and he says, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, and you yourselves are thrust out. So he changes focus a little bit in the sense of, okay, you can't make it through the door anymore. Okay? So you've got to go somewhere else. And this other place is what we would like to call hell. And he says, you will see people coming into the kingdom of God. But for you yourself, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He says, they will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and sit down in the kingdom of God. And Jesus is specifically speaking to Jews right here and to a Jew. And he's warning them and he's letting them know that, it, that heaven is not just for the Jews, but it's for all. That some will come from the east and the west and north and the south. Because sometimes we make heaven too broad, right? We think that there will be less people than we're expecting, but we also make heaven too narrow and that we think that there will only be a certain type of group in heaven. But Jesus is like, they'll come from the east, the west, the north, the south. Anyone who enters through the narrow gate, anyone who comes to God through the Son, Jesus Christ. And he says in verse 30, indeed there are, la there are last who will be first, and there are first who will be last. So Jesus speaking of hell, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, where they could see others entering instead of they themselves. The definite articles with weeping and gnashing emphasize the horror of the scene, the weeping and the gnashing. Weeping suggests suffering and gnashing suggests despair. You know, this is a very real thing. And again, Christ doesn't want us to go to hell. Hence why he came to earth and became man, lived a perfect life, sacrificed his own life, and was raised again. And he did this all while everyone despised him and rejected him. There were very few. And even them, they, they couldn't even stand with him. They deserted him, right? The 12 guys that he, that he chose, you know how many, of your, how many of them were with him when he was on the cross? I can't remember. I think it was actually none of them. I think they all deserted him. Am I wrong? It might have been John, one, okay. One or zero. Let's just say it was very few, right? The idea here is that we have a God who does love us, right? And he wants to save us, right? But because he's just, if we reject the free gift of salvation, well, you, you have to pay the consequence and the penalty of sin, right? And that's where hell comes into play. So he doesn't want you to go there, but he's warning you that's a very real place. And it's not a fun place. It's not a party, that's not where we're all going to gather. No, it's, it's going to be it's going to be bad. He goes on in verse 31. On that very day, some Pharisees came to him. And they said to him, get out and depart from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Now, this could be a Pharisee that is just like a good Pharisee in the sense of like he's, he's actually warning Jesus. Like he wants him to know like, dude, this guy's going to come and try and kill you. Or he's maybe, you know, not so good and he's just trying to frighten and scare Jesus. Um, but either way... Herod wants to kill him, and Jesus' response to him is, he says, go tell that fox. <laughs> the idea of fox here is usually is described as 
someone who is cunning but a weak ruler. Okay, so Jesus is telling him like it is. He says, Behold, I cast out demons to perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day shall be perfected. Jesus is basically saying if Herod, Jesus wanted Herod to know that he would continue his work to its conclusion. He wasn't afraid of Herod, and he wants Herod to know it, right? Be perfected, right? This is what Jesus says. He says, on the third day I shall be perfected. That term, the group of words there, be perfected, actually has the idea of to reach the goal. So the point is that Jesus will reach his goal no matter what, right? That Herod will not be able to kill Jesus before his time is up. Jesus came on earth to do what he came to do, and he's going to do it. Nobody can stop him. So, so Jesus is not afraid. This doesn't alter Jesus' plans. He says in verse 33, Nevertheless, I must journey today, tomorrow, and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. Specifically speaking of this prophet, he, the prophet that was prophesied of beforehand by other prophets, that he would come and lay down his life in Jerusalem. But it also sounds like, in a sense, that Jesus is three days away from getting to Jerusalem. And then he ends this section here in verses 34 and 35. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, and assuredly I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You know, Jesus is warning the Jews over and over again, as we see here in this story in verses 24 through 33. And then his heart, you see his heart for the Jews, for his people. You know, he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Any, t- any time that names were repeated, there was an emphasis to it. There was a depth to it. It spoke of a deep emotion. You know, we see this with Martha. We see this with Saul. And he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, because Jesus cares for them. Even though they're rejecting him, he cares for them. He loves them. He says it like this. He says, Jerusalem, you want to... You're the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. Even though you do that, this is what he says, how often I wanted to gather your children together as hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. So Jesus explains the deep love he has for them, even though they reject and want to kill him and have killed others in the past, his heart is that he still loves them. And he, he likens it to a hen that would protect its young by putting them in her wings. I'll give you an example. There was an article in the National Geographic where there was a forest fire in Yellowstone National Park, and the forest rangers, as they began to trek up a mountain to assess the damage, there was one ranger who found a bird literally, literally petrified in ashes, perched statuesquely on the ground at the base of a tree. And somewhat sickened by the eerie sight, this ranger knocked over the bird with a stick And when he struck it, three tiny chicks scurried from under their dead mother's wings. The loving mother, keenly aware of impending disaster, had carried her offspring to the base of the tree and had gathered them under her wings, instinctively knowing that the toxic smoke would rise. She could have flown to safety, but had refused to abandon her babies. And when the blaze had arrived and the heat singed her small body, the mother had remained steadfast because she had been willing to die so that those under the cover of her wings would live. I mean, what a sweet and beautiful picture that we see in nature that really displays the gospel and the heart that Jesus has. That, remember, that's his heart, that he doesn't want anyone to perish. Again, Jesus doesn't have to die. He doesn't have to die. 
but he wants to because it's the only way to pay for the penalty of our sin that we as mankind have committed. There's no other way. And Jesus even prayed for this. If there's any other way, let this cup pass. But he also knew that there really wasn't any other way, and he, he went through with it. And it says, with the joy set before him that he endured the cross. Again, because he knew that, yeah, the, the, the payment for the penalty was priceless. It was insane. But the reward that came with it was to reconcile us back to God for us to be saved. For us, for the, for the little, little chicklings to, to walk out underneath the mother's wings. This is the description that Jesus is giving for his people, for Jerusalem. But he says this, and this is where it's heart-wrenching. He says, but you were not willing. Again, the willingness is not of Jesus to rescue and protect us as people. The problem is that we are not willing, that we reject him, right? That we reject him. And so there's a warning for us again here today that we make sure that our relationship with Christ is not some made-up thing, that we're not deceiving our own selves. Because at the end of the day, guys, who cares who you deceive? You just don't want to deceive yourself and think that you truly know Jesus. And then you come to a point when you try to enter in the kingdom of heaven, and God's like, I don't know you. I don't know you because you don't know me. You know, and that's, he warns us, make sure that we know him. And then if, if you have the question of, well, how do, I, how do I genuinely know? First, you can do two things. Read your Bible and then go ask your parents. And if you can't find your answer there, then come back to me. Okay? Let's pray. So Lord, we thank you for another week, another day, another challenging part of Scripture. Lord, we thank you that you, you are representative of like this, this mother hen who protects it's babies. Lord, you love us. You care for us. And Lord, I pray that we would choose to follow you and choose to put our faith in you. Lord, that if there's anyone in this room this morning who has taken for granted where we are in our walk, Lord, who maybe have deceived our own selves in believing that I really am saved, I really, I really do know who you are. And maybe there's some of us who are saved, but but we've walked away and there's been less intimacy with, with our Savior. Lord, I pray that you would draw us closer, that we would confess and repent of our sin. Lord, we know that you are faithful and just to forgive us of all of our unrighteousness and to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. So I pray if that's necessary for today, that we would do it. Lord, we thank you that you care for us and you love us. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>